So today we are focusing on the chorus of this, this psalm. We said that this is really a song that was uh, sang by the people of Israel. And we said that there are three movements to this song. Um, there are three verses, if you would. And then there's a chorus that's repeated in verse 7 and again in verse 11. And it's the chorus that we just read. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we're going to just simply focus on that one phrase. The Lord of hosts is with us. We're going to zoom in, really pick that verse apart, and really understand the weight of that statement. Because a lot of times that's a saying that we just easily say. Uh, I know there's a lot of songs about this, but at the same time, a lot, like, a lot of times we don't realize the weight of this statement. So the Lord of hosts is with us. There are three things that we learn about God in this simple phrase. The mo- number, first, number one is this, the first thing. God is the Lord. God is the Lord. He's not a Lord. Notice the definite article, the Lord. He is not one of many. He is the one and only. He is in a class of his own. Also notice that the Lord, hopefully in your Bible, is all caps. And so there are times in your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where only the L will be capitalized. And that comes from the Hebrew word um, Adonai, which means in a general term, um, Lord or Master. But when it's in all caps, it's not the Hebrew word Adonai. It's God's personal name, Yahweh. And so a lot of traditional Jews or um, Orthodox Jews, they wouldn't actually pronounce this name in such a way. They believe that this name is too holy, that they don't want to take any risk of taking the Lord's name in vain. So instead of Yahweh, they would substitute this name into different things when they pray. So this is a very holy name, a name that's set apart, a name that we first see in the book of Genesis, and then really we get the meaning from Exodus chapter 3. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, the people of Israel, they're in bondage, they're in slavery, they are struggling under the rule of Pharaoh, and then you come to a place where God calls Moses. And, and Moses is told that he has to lead God's people out of Egypt. And Moses, he's 80 years old, he, he has a history of, of failure, he committed some crimes, and so he's scared to go back. He doesn't even know if there are people who recognize him. He was once a prince of Egypt, but now, I mean, who knows like, what's going to happen when he goes back. So he asks a very important question, God, when I go back, what should I say to the people? How would I introduce you? Like, what do I say to the people? And this is what Moses, this is what God says. Moses asks the question, what is your name? Like, what should I introduce you? And God says, well, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when you first read this, I remember when I first read this, the first thing that comes to your mind is God has horrible grammar, right? Because that, that doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't say, I am who, who I am. That just does not make sense. Like, I am what? And it's like, I am. Like, tell that I am has sent me. Like, that's, that's a strange phrase. But the more and more you think about it, this is the perfect way to describe God because what it's basically saying is a couple of things. Number one, God doesn't need an introduction. Now, when I introduce myself, I say, I am uh, a pastor at Shining Star. I am a father of two. I am uh, I, I'm someone who lives in America and all those different things. Uh, so there are certain things that describe me. The reason why God doesn't need an introduction like that is because he is not described by other things. He gets to describe all things. Because the Bible tells us before there was anything, there was God. 
So God is the one who defined things. He's not defined by other things. So we kind of see that God is in a class of his own. And this also means that we don't get to define God. A lot of times uh, people would say, I believe in God. They would say, I, I love God. But if you ask the question, then who is God? They would say something like, well, he's loving, he's kind, he's the one who helps me. And then you would ask the question, well, how do you know that? And, and they would say, well, it's just because he's God. He, he should be that way. And what's really happening is it's not that they know the God from how God has revealed himself in his word. It's that they believe in a God that they create in, in their own mind. They think God should be like this. God should be like that. God should help me. He should care for me. That he should provide all my needs. And, and you put God in this box, and the box that you created is, is for yourself. And what God is saying is, I am who I am. I am not who you want me to be. I am who I am. I am not who you want me to be. Like, you don't get to define me. I am self-existing. Like, that's, that's who I am. And the third thing that we see is this. In the simple statement, I am, it means that God does not change. Uh, in, in a very fancy way, we say that God is immutable, meaning that his character does not change over time. For us, we have a past, we have a future. We say, I was something like this, and then in the future, I would like to be this. But for God, there is no past, there is no future, because he is always consistent. He doesn't talk about the past. He doesn't talk about the future, because he does not change. He is always the same, and that is a good thing, because if he is the Lord, it means he is always the Lord. So God is the Lord. There is no other. He is in a class of his own. The first thing that we see. Number two is this. The Lord, the one and only, has an army. Lord of hosts. That's the second phrase that we see. The word host, we mentioned this in the last sermon. Um, the host, word host is not the host that you see in a restaurant or uh, someone who's hosting a party, but it's a military term. It literally means an army. So God has a, an army. And so what kind of army does he have? If you go to Psalm 103, verse 21, it says, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. And in other translations like the NIV, it says all his heavenly Host. So the idea here is that God has an army, but it's not just a normal army, but it's a heavenly army. So what's this army? An army that's in heaven, that's always doing his will. What's this army? And the, the answer is quite simple. Well, uh, those are angels. Angels who do his will, who are messengers of God, who work for God, they're in, in heaven and they are fighting on behalf of God. So angels are, are part of God's, God's hosts. So God has this angel army, an army of angels, which begs the question, actually two questions. Number one, so how strong are these angels? Number two, how big is this army? So the first question, how, how strong are these angels? Now, there's no place in the Bible that says this is how strong angels are. This is how, how much an angel would bench press. Like, there's nowhere in the Bible where it describes the strength of an angel. But we do get an idea of how powerful these beings are. In 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 19, we have a cool story where Assyria is coming in to destroy Judah. And, uh, and, and literally, a lot of people think that Psalm 46 was written in this context. Uh, so Judah is, Jerusalem is basically surrounded by Assyria. And, 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 and the king doesn't know what to do at that moment. And so he prays. And, and as he's praying, what happens is God sends uh, 
an angel to, to destroy an army of Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were barbaric. The Assyrians were, were really good at fighting. And so God sends his, his, his heavenly host to, to destroy the army. And it says, one angel destroyed 185,000 soldiers. So one angel is able to destroy, annihilate 185,000 trained soldiers, some of the best soldiers in the world. And now we have to ask the question, now how many of them exist? Okay, that's how powerful one angel is. How many angels are there? Well, again, we don't have a place where it says this is how many angels there are, but we kind of get an idea of how many angels exist who are serving the Lord in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, you have this picture of the throne room. Um, you have God who is sitting on the throne, and then you have the Lamb, who is Jesus, who is worthy to carry out God's plan. And as this is all unfolding, it says in Revelation 5:11, John, he's seeing this vision, right? He says, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So the word myriad, it comes from a Roman numerical term. Um, it's, it's the number 10,000. So when it says myriads of myriads, it's 10,000 times 10,000. So if you do the math, it's 100 million uh, that, that at least that are there. And so you might think, okay, John did a quick head count, or maybe he, he was smart enough to, to do the math, and then so he came up with a number, 200 million angels are there praising the Lord. But the word myriad, by the way, in the Roman numerical system is the biggest number. So I don't think John is just simply giving a head count. What he's saying is this. I, I saw a group of angels that are innumerable, that you cannot count. I, I saw the beginning, but I did not see the end. That's what he's saying when he says myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. And that's what you see in Luke 2 when the, the shepherds receive this message that, hey, great news, great joy is coming to you. A Christ will be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior. He is going to be the Lord. And when this is stated, the Bible says there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Now, uh, according to Wikipedia, it says that uh, America has the third largest army. Now, it depends on how you kind of count this, but we're talking about active soldiers, right? We're not talking about reserves and all that. We're talking about active soldiers. I believe China is number one when it comes to just number of soldiers, and then uh, India is number two, and so a lot of it is based on population, but America is number three. USA has about 1,388,000 soldiers, active soldiers. Now, if you do the math, imagine God, for some reason, is going to destroy America. He's going to go against the American army, like the entire army, the entire military. How many angels does he need to send? Eight. That's all he needs to send. They can literally come in in a minivan and, and, and take on the American troops. Like, that, that's how strong this army is. So you have the Lord, who's above all, who made all things, and he reigns over all things. He's in a class of his own. He has an army that is powerful beyond our imagination. And here's the great part of this verse. It says that the Lord of hosts is with us. Like, when we say God is with us, we're not just saying, okay, man, 
He identifies with us. He's with us in spirit. He's cheering us on. No, again, this is happening in a military context. When God says, I'm with you, it's this idea that the king is going to battle. He's in the very front, and he's saying, I'm going to fight your battles for you. That's the idea. It's not just that God is our cheerleader in heaven saying that, go, go, go. Like, you're doing great. No, that's not the idea. He's actively engaged in this battle. So let's try to wrap this uh, into our brains. Like, so God, the Lord, who rules over all things, he has an army that's powerful than anything that we can imagine. And, and he is with us. And that's an incredible thought, an incredible promise. And this leads us to ask the question, so how much of that is real? Right? Because if the Lord of hosts is that powerful and he's with us, I mean, one struggle that we have, especially living in 21st century America, is this, that we don't go to bed worrying about our enemies. Now, we don't go to sleep at night worrying that someone's going to invade us. I mean, that's a possibility. But at the same time, because of all the sacrifices that was made in the past, we have troops and armies that, that bring safety and stability to our country. And so... In, a lot of sense, it's hard for us to identify with this, this psalm. It's a great thought. But the question is, how much of this is relevant to our life on a day-to-day basis, right? How much of this idea that God is our fortress, that he is our refuge and strength, that he is our present help in times of trouble, how much of this idea of, of God being that source of gladness in the midst of the city that's surrounded with enemies, how much of this idea is the God who is seizing or is ending wars, how much of that is true in our personal life? In what way is God fighting for us today? That's the question I want to answer. And in order to answer this question, I think we have to jump to the New Testament. So hopefully you have your Bible. I don't do this quite often, but I'm going to make you turn there. Go to Romans chapter 8. So really, if you can summarize the, 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 the story of Psalm 46 is this. God is for us, right? God, who is, who's, who's the Lord, he is fighting on our behalf. He is for us. He's not against us. And that idea is captured in Romans 8. So you see that that's not just an idea in the past, but this is a present idea. Romans 8 is one of the most beautiful chapters that are in the Bible, by the way. It talks about how there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It also talks about how there is life in the Spirit and how the Spirit empowers us to call God our Father, that we don't have to operate under fear, but we have this, this, this Spirit that allows us to actually have this genuine relationship with God like a son will have with the Father. And we also have this future glory that's in hand. Not only that, you go to verse 26, it talks about how the Spirit is interceding for us, even at times when we do not know what to pray for, that we don't know how to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. It also talks about for those who love God, all things are working for our good. So incredible picture of, of, of salvation and all the promises that come with salvation. And this is what Paul says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things in light of all that was just mentioned about salvation, in light of all the privileges that we receive in Christ, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And there's four questions about who, and 
to all those questions, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. There's no one can, can be against us. In verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul, he's making this argument. He's saying that if God was willing to give us sinners who were hopelessly dead in their sin, who were disobedient to, its, to their core, us, if God was willing to give his very own son for us so that he would die on our behalf and so that we could believe in him and have new life, if God was willing to do that, what will he not give us? That's, that's, that's what he's, he's getting to, that God is gracious, that he's willing to work and fight on our behalf. It says in verse 33, and I think this is where we kind of really kind of connect things with Psalm 46. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So now it's switching to a legal, legal setting. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Christ Jesus is uh, more, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here you see that in a legal way, Christ is interceding on our behalf. So here's kind of the setting. God is at the, at the judge seat. Like, he's the judge. He's the ultimate judge. And standing before the judge, you have yourself. And, and I'm standing there as well. And so it's, it's a courtroom setting. And you have someone who's accusing you. Now, who's the accuser? Who's the prosecuting uh, attorney at this point? Well, there can be many people in this case, right? Um, I know for, for me, there's a lot of people who accuse me for my faults before the Lord, uh, starting from my family. Um, my brother will have a lot of stuff to say. My sister definitely has a lot of stuff to say about me. And then you have uh, your friends. Sometimes I worried you know, what would people think, especially my high school friends or my middle school friends? This is almost like my pre-kind of sanctified version of me. They saw me, and what would they think of me if they saw me preach on YouTube, right? Sometimes I think of that. Like, it's so embarrassing at times. I mean, I'm confident that the things I'm preaching are true, but at the same time, because I know how messed up I was in the past, I'm like, I wonder if they would, like, 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 yeah, think of me as, as this weird guy who's all of a sudden trying to act all holy. Because the truth is, I'm not that holy. Now, my son and my daughter can testify about that. They know how inconsistent I am. My wife, surely, can make a long list of stuff to accuse me. So we have all these people who can accuse me, not just me, but you have all these people who can accuse you. But it goes even deeper than that. Because the Bible says we have an enemy, and his name is Satan. And the name Satan itself means accuser adversary. So literally, Satan's name, it means accusing. And so he's already guilty. Uh, he already is at fault. You know, he committed sin against God. So he's saying, I'm not going to go down by my own. Like, he's, so he's kind of in the Bible, the, the main, um, the prosecutor, he's the one who's bringing all these charges. He's saying, God, like, do you remember what James did back in those days? Do you remember what, what the thought that he had the other day? Do you remember how, how inconsistent he is? You know, he, 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 he has this two-faced, like he acts all holy in front of people, and yet in his personal life, he has all these evil thoughts and he's corrupted, which is probably all true, and he brings that before the Lord. And that's kind of what the Bible is saying. It says in Revelation 12, 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accusers, talking about Satan, of our brothers, have been thrown down. 
who accuses them day and night before our God. So there is victory against the accuser, but notice that Satan, his main deal is to accuse you day and night before God. So there is really two things that Satan does. Number one, he deceives you so that you would sin against God. Number two, the moment that you sin, like he's going to act all friendly before that. He's going to say, hey, it's going to be okay. Just go down this pathway. It's not a big deal. I mean, God didn't really mean that when he gave that command. You can kind of, you have some wiggle room. You have some gray areas. Just go down this pathway. It's going to be okay. And the moment you take a bite from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, the moment you fall into temptation and you sin against the Lord, he's like, okay, God, see what that, that man did? See what that lady did? What are you going to do about that? Like, you're holy. You're just. And on a daily basis, he, he's bringing all these charges in the courtroom before God. And the Bible says they're all true. But there's only one reason why you and I are standing here today. It's because we have Jesus Christ who's standing right next to the Father, the ultimate judge. And he is interceding on our behalf. He's listening to all these accusations. And as he's listening, although they're all true, what he says is, uh, excuse me, judge, all that is true, but I already paid the price for this person, that I died for this person. So this person can walk free on a daily basis, do you recognize that the only way that the Christian life makes sense is if we have a Savior who is fighting on our behalf on a daily basis? The only way that you can, and I can actually call God God and, and say that we love Him, say that we want to be with Him, is because out of God's grace, we have Jesus who is fighting on our behalf. And this is not just a past thing that He did on the cross but this is a present reality on a daily basis. And ultimately, one day he will return and fight our battles and to destroy death and, and all these last enemies. That day will come, but in the meantime, on a daily basis, he's fighting off all these accusations. I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself, man, I just blew it. I, I just messed up so bad. There's no way I can recover. There's no way God is going to accept me as his as, as child. Like, I, I can't live like this anymore. And, and Satan uses that. He uses all that guilt and shame. Like, and he said, see, you tried so hard and it doesn't work out. Just walk away from God. Like, it's not worth it. It's not worth your time. It's not worth the sacrifice. You're already, you know, like kind of far away from God anyways. There's no way God is going to accept you. Like, and he puts all this guilt and shame on our heart. And what the Bible tells us is that for those who are in Christ, we have a refuge that we have a fortress. Although all these spiritual attacks are coming our way on a daily basis, our enemy is accusing us. We have a shelter in Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that keeps us hopeful and alive in our Christian walk. As Satan is accusing us, Jesus Christ fights for us. Psalm 46 is not a metaphor, it's a reality that's played out on a daily basis. Jesus Christ is fighting on our behalf so that now we can fight with him. I know sometimes people get really, really frustrated that things are not working out in their walk with the Lord, that they get frustrated that they're having these spiritual battles, that they're struggling with sin, that they're struggling with, with different people and, and all these broken things in their lives. But do you recognize 
that the frustration, the difficulty, you struggling with all those things, it's actually a sign that you are living the Christian life. It's a sign that you are engaging in the battle. It's a sign that you're fighting. If there is no struggle in your life, if there is no difficulty in your life, it could simply mean that you're not engaged in the battle, that, that you're not even trying, that, that, that you are not walking with the Lord because the Lord says the Christian life is not necessarily just a life of a civilian. It's a life of a soldier. And if a soldier is comfortable and if a soldier has no worries at all, if a soldier doesn't feel any danger, could it be that a soldier is not living as a soldier? And I think that's really what's happening in Psalm 46. If we read this and we're like, well, that's great. And then we hear Romans 8 and how Jesus is fighting for us on a daily basis. And you hear that and it's, you go, oh, that's great. If that's all that you're responding to, could it be that you're walking on the wrong side today? Because remember the setting in Psalm 46, there's an enemy that's surrounding this, this city, Jerusalem. God's people, and there's these constant attacks. And in the midst of that, God is saying that I'm a fortress, that I'm a, I'm, I'm a refuge and strength, that I'm, I'm the source of gladness to you. But the people that are not feeling this tension, that are not struggling, uh, are, are not the people inside of the city. They're people outside of the city. The enemy that's trying to destroy God's people, they're the ones who feel, like, feel pretty good about themselves. And you actually see this in Exodus. Uh, when you mentioned this um, before, there's a clear connection with the book of Exodus and this psalm. Pharaoh, he feels pretty confident in what he's doing. And so he's going after the people of God. After sign after sign, God has displayed clearly that he's going to lead his people out of Egypt. And after this rebelling uh, period of time, he finally lets them go. But uh, again, he thinks, well, still, I, I, I should go after them. And so Pharaoh decides to go after them. So he's not operating under fear. He's operating under pride. He's confident that he can destroy the, the Israelites and says this in Exodus 14.8. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is speaking to his people. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. A lot of people ask the question, why did God lead the people of Israel out in such a dramatic way? Why couldn't he just grab them from the very beginning? Why did he have to go through the ten plagues? Why did he have to go through the crossing of the Red Sea? And God says, well, my goal is not just to save you, but I'm going to display my glory through you that the world will know that I am the Lord, period, that there is no other, so that the enemies of God would be still, that they would surrender, they would stop fighting, they would actually recognize and bow down and worship me. So God, he's doing this out of compassion. He's hoping as, as he, he's not just destroying the enemies, he's waiting and waiting and he's doing it in a way that he's hoping that the nations will come back to him because he wants them to recognize that he is the Lord. And because of that, he says, be still and know that I am the Lord. So how do we respond to such an incredible thought that the Lord of hosts is with us? Our response is this. We live remembering that God is our Lord. We be still, and again, this is not an idea of just living in, 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 in a noise-free environment, but it's talking about the idea that we don't try to fight our battles on our own, but we surrender to the Lord. We recognize that he is our commander-in-chief, and I love what God says through Moses in Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14. It says this, 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All you have to do is be silent. Wait on him. Trust him. You know, Martin Luther, um, the guy who led the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, um, it was a big deal because Martin Luther was just this monk, and he saw all this, this mess in the Roman Catholic Church, um, how the Pope was elevated uh, in a position where he had the same authority as Scripture, and they were practicing all these different things. And Martin Luther, seeing all of that, he says, well, that's not right. That something has to change. And as he's making all these statements, as he's fighting to reclaim really the authority of Scripture, to reclaim how faith alone, Christ, in Christ alone, in grace alone, how all those things are so important to our faith, he write, actually writes a hymn. And you might know this. It's called The Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And that hymn was written out of Psalm 46. So Martin Luther, as he is fighting the spiritual battle, he's not necessarily fighting physically with enemies, right? Although he was in danger many times because of his position. But he's fighting the spiritual battle because he wants to stand up for what is true about God. And the same way, I think in many ways in our culture, there are times where we have to stand up for God, that we have to simply say, no, that is not true. Just don't go what the culture says about all the things of life, but stand up for God. Stand up for, for the things that matter for God. Stand up for justice. Stand up for life. Stand up for all these things. Why? Because the Lord of hosts is with us. And if the Lord of hosts is with us, who can be against us? What ha- do we have to fear? God is fighting for us. He actually leads us to victory, especially on a daily basis. Because of that, you don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to question your salvation or your position in Christ anymore if you are in Christ, but you can walk confidently trusting in him. So today, remember, don't fight your battles alone. Fight your battles with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.